Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 32nd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you every everything you need to know from the past week in our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good afternoon to you, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. I'm ready for this one. Yeah. So uh, interesting past week in the markets here is uh, last Friday, um, you know, markets kind of sold off and had their largest uh, day of declines in a very long period of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, we talked about how low volatility you know, we've had, uh, we really hadn't, have not had a move mark of over uh, or under 1% in some time. And I think it just goes to show the hot money going into the weekend had a lot of concerns and everything was sold off last Friday. Yeah. Yeah. And then here we are this week. Uh, we had a, a strong day yesterday in the markets on February 3rd. And today, February 4th, um, we're up pretty strong again. So pretty much everyone who sold last week is rebuying yesterday and today. That's what it looks like. Feels that way. That's what it looks like. Um, so just to go over the performance of the key indexes that we track, um, this data is as of the close on February 3rd, and the data is from stockcharts.com. S&P 5 index uh, through the year of 2020 up 0.56%. The Dow down 0.49%. The NASDAQ up 3.35%. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 2.02% for the year. The International Index X United States down 2.31% for the year. Uh, the three-month Treasury sitting at 1.57%. The two-year Treasury yield sitting at 1.36% and the 10-year treasury yield at 1.54%. So uh, again, we got that yield curve inversion with the three-month T-bill and the 10-year treasury um, indicating that, you know, at least in the short term, there's a little more uh, nervousness in the market. Yeah, I'll be interested, Mark, uh, to watch these yields over the course of the next month, approximately, because I don't think you're going to see just the, the yield surge overnight one day. That tends to be a little bit of a slower process. Yeah, no, yeah. I would agree. So uh, news and headlines for the week. I mean, the coronavirus has really been the major focus, at least for financial media. So I know you had a couple of points on that um, before moving on, Matt. Yeah. So listeners, I know Mark and I talked about this last week. We felt that this was going to be more of a short term um, issue for the markets, not trying to belittle the um, humanitarian impact that it's making on different parts of the world. But we have to look at this through the optics of how it affects investments, right? So a couple things. Uh, first, you know, the, the, the disease appears to vastly be more dangerous for the old, the very young, or people with uh, poor immune systems. Um, the thing I'll throw out is this. Uh, the exponential curve that was originally um, thought or the market was thinking would occur, Mark, is that we should expect to have about 70,000 total cases around the world. And right now, globally, it's a little bit above 20,000. 
So in essence, at the end of the day, we are seeing the rate of new illness cases is slowing. Is this number still getting bigger? Yes, but not at an exponential rate. What this is telling people is that this is a pandemic that is going to be controllable. So in other words, um, and I'm going to quote Bespoke on this, as the disease progresses in time passes, the rate of onward transmission appears to be falling. Public health activities and awareness are key drivers. While the disease still poses a substantial risk for the populations of China and to a lesser degree around the world, there's no evidence of an accelerating um, pandemic, rather a slowing pandemic. Now, let's talk about how this is affecting stocks. So people are concerned about economic activity in Asia, and they're concerned about the evolution of what we would call just on time delivery, right? You know, these logistics are very complicated. And with plants closing temporarily in China, people are concerned that that could temporarily drag down global growth. Right, Mark? Mm -hmm. So this is a, um, a news bit from Bloomberg just this morning about Apple. So the title of it is Apple suppliers are restarting Chinese production February 10th. Just one headline. Yeah, I right? saw that. So with all this being said, I think that you are seeing great containment um, by the rest of the world outside of China. It appears that China is doing its best to quarantine and slow the rate, which we're seeing. So I think at this point, going back a week ago, Mark, this is what I would define as the best case scenario, right? So the pandemic is not uncontrollable. The rate of new uh, infections is slowing. Everything I think you'd want to see up to this point. And I think a combination of strong fourth quarter earnings that are being reported on top of the slowing rate of new infections caused by this virus in China and other parts of the world is the reason why you're seeing all the money that sold last week is flowing right back into the market. And it appears so far that people are, quote unquote, buying the dip. Yeah. So I'll turn it over to you and I'll let you add any sort of commentary that you wish. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think it's one of these things where, well, I mean, I guess you can say this about just about any other uh reporting of any other news or numbers or what have you is, you know, how accurate are these numbers and how accurate were the numbers when this pandemic first started, right? It's like, how does someone quantify that? So that's why I think it makes it hard to act on something like this when it relates to your investments, because you really, you know, you don't know precisely what the numbers are or how it's going to affect you know, the world economy, if it is going to have a big effect or it's not. So I think it's just goes back to the point that backs up our research that you shouldn't really be trading or making investing decisions based on this. I absolutely agree, Mark. And you and I hit that point last week. You know, if you're making an investment decision based upon where you think the market or a specific investment is going to be two weeks from now, three weeks from now, that's a losing game. Yeah. And so um, I think having listeners hear from us and reiterate that in our opinion, the longer term picture has not been changed by what's been going on with the coronavirus. Right. 
Is it going to affect short-term numbers? Absolutely, it's going to. But in our view, it's not going to have a lasting effect. And we'll continue to closely monitor it. But as long as the rate of new cases continues to slow and not advance, I think our blueprint remains the same. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Uh, as Matt said, um, Q4 2019 earnings have been uh, continuing to come in good overall, I would say, or at least the, the market um, is responding well to it. And then um, the Fed left monetary policy unchanged as expected last week. So no uh, major news uh, on the Fed side of things, Matt. So I will turn it back over to you to start out with the tweets, articles, and research for the week that caught our eye. All right. I got a couple. And then one of these is going to be pretty fun, I think. Okay. All right. So the first one, Mark, I got it has to do with Chicago Fed's National Financial Conditions Index. And Mark, this data is from January 29th, sir. It says, one of the consequences of the Fed's willingness to keep rates low in the pursuit of higher inflation, as they confirmed this past week, is easier financial conditions. Wednesday's update from the Chicago Fed's National Financial Conditions Index shows aggregate financial conditions about as easy as they're ever going to be. All right. So the headline index was the lowest since February of 1994, Mark, um, though the adjusted index was less dramatic. The drivers are interesting. While the market-based credit and the risk components are at the bottom decile of their historical range, leverage remains relatively low, which equates to a higher reading for the index. As noted by Fed Chair Powell during his press conference on Wednesday, easy financial conditions are, support, are supportive for growth conditions, and they represent a vote of confidence in the outlook for the markets. Yeah. So once again, you know, this overnight lending program that the Fed has done for banks behind the scenes that started in September, that's probably been a big driver to this index going to a low dating back to 94. So generally speaking, there's a lot of money flowing through the monetary system right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't under, or I guess maybe this is me just not understanding it, but I don't see how with this easy of financial conditions that the economy, at least for the next six to 12 months, if conditions stay the same, um, is not going to do well, right? Because, you know, they are pretty easy right now. Yeah. So again, I just don't think that there's a lot of other places for money to go right now. I agree. All right. I got two more, Mark. Um, next one is a life expectancy update. Now, this was an article in the New York Post on January 30th, sir. Life expectancy in the U.S. is up for the first time in four years, Mark. The increase is small. It's just a month, but it marks at least a temporary halt to a downward trend. The rise is due to lower death rates for cancer in drug overdoses. The latest calculation for 2018, and it factors in, factors in mark current death trends and other issues. So on average, an infant born in 2018 is expected to live 78 years in eight months, according to the CDC. For males, it's about 76 years in two months. And for females, it's about 81 years in one month interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. And and we'll link to this article uh, from the New York Post in the show notes too. So people can go read this and look at that. But I think that, you know, as, or as technology begins to 
play a larger and ro- larger role in our economy, I think that that's going to you know funnel into the healthcare system, and eventually, uh, people I think are going to start to live longer. So it wouldn't surprise me if you know the life expectancy continued to go up from here, especially over the next couple of years. So there's a lot of exciting stuff going on in the healthcare industry. I think personally, that um, possibly supports longevity for people. And I think healthy eating is becoming more and more of um, something that people really want to tackle. And it's not necessarily a fad like it has been in the past that I think a lot of research is out there that shows, you know, just by changing your diet, it could increase your longevity by itself. Um, So I think that there are a lot of factors that are driving uh, people to live longer and longer. But interesting, interesting. I, I would post. agree, Mark. I mean, you know, on the healthcare side, the last comment I'll make is this. I think you and I both see the evolution to where they're developing drugs that are specific for your body and your genes. Yeah. I mean, that's where the puck is going. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, interesting. Now, this is the next one I have for before I turn it back to you, Mark, is a fun one. Um, it's from Bespoke Investment Group, and it's just some fun stats about what the market does depending upon who wins the Super Bowl, right? Right. This means nothing. This is just fun, (laughs) right? Yeah. So um, leading up to the Super Bowl this past weekend, um, Bespoke looked back in history at the S&P 500. And so the 49ers have won five other times. They've won the Super Bowl five times. And the average return for the market from the Super Bowl to the end of that year was 20% in the years where San Francisco won. Well, that's a shame that they didn't win then. <laughs> no kidding. I was rooting for that because of that I know, statistic. I know. I saw that too. Yeah. Now, the Chiefs have only won one other time, and their performance from the year they won from the Super Bowl date to the end of the year was a loss of 0.3%. Okay. Again, the data mix is like nothing here. Yeah. Yeah, it has no correlation. The sample the size stock. is small for Kansas City. Small, no yeah. correlation to anything with the markets. Right. It's just a fun stat that I was rooting for the 49ers because of that. I was too. I was too. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. That's, it was just uh, a fun ho- little stat. Hopefully the Chiefs can uh, turn around their their average here with uh, hopefully a strong year to, to finish off the markets um, so they can kind of bump that average return up uh, and kind of compete with uh, the 49ers. No kidding. The Bucks, when the Bucks won, it looks like one year ago, I'm just looking at this chart that you sent, uh, S&P 500 was up 29.1% to end of the year. Yeah, so. and so with the bulk of wins, uh, there's two tied at six. The Steelers, and their average was 18%, and then the Patriots had six wins, and their average was 10.6. Hmm. Just fun Fun stats that have nothing to do (laughs) other than Super Bowl. Yeah, that's cool. So I guess if um, maybe next year we can get this data again and, um, you know, kind of put that out there for people. So if people just say, hey, I want to see a good game, maybe it'll give them them someone to root for. Who should I root for? Whoever has the better uh, average return in the markets (laughs) after winning the Super Bowl. So I love it. I'm going to turn it back to you. Maybe we do that next year. That's great. So I only had one thing uh, from tweets and research from the week, and this was an article on Market Watch, and this was back in November of 2019, Matt, and this was an article by Steve Goldstein. 
So it's one of my favorite topics to talk about, um, talking about, you know, uh, talking heads on the financial news media that have all these doomsday Armageddon calls. Um, and I haven't seen someone- the old apocalyptic predictions sell, man. Yeah. I, don't, I haven't seen this quantified yet. So I found this article really interesting. So- uh, Michael Sembalest, the chairman and, uh, or excuse me, the chairman of market and investment strategy for J.P. Morgan, rounded up apocalyptic predictions from a range of commentators, including famed investor George Soros, bond market giant Jeffrey Gunlock, activist Carl Icahn, and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman. So he then calculated the consequences of shifting $1 from the S&P 500 index um, to the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index from the time of their Armageddon predictions. Ooh. Okay. So we'll link to this. We already did link to this article in the show notes. So if you click on the link, it'll pull up this chart that Matt and I are looking at right now. Listeners, you want to pull this up. You do, um, because every time from when people say, hey, the market is due for this huge downfall, you should shift your money to more conservative investments. Um, the best performer, and this data is between uh, 2010 and 2019, the best performance since this Armageddon call has been roughly around negative 25% if you were to follow this these talking heads in this strategy. That's the best case scenario. That's the best case scenario. Tell me what the worst case was. Right around negative 60%. Of underperformance. Of underperformance. So it's pretty interesting. So it, uh, it, it references, uh, like I said, some of the guys that I just mentioned. Peter Schiff is also on there. Tom DeMarc, uh, David Stockerman, Albert Edwards, Mark, Mark Faber, Faber um, David, David Rosenberg. Rosenberg. So people who oh, are... Dr. Doom, Noriel Rubini's on here too. <laughs> so it, it just he goes... He literally embraces that... Dr. Doom, yeah, they call him that. I know, yeah. I know. So it's just interesting to see that, you know, to go back and actually chart this stuff and, you know, what would have happened to your investment if you really shifted all to, you know, bonds at that period of time, you know, what your underperformance would have been to the market. So I think, again, it's just one of those things where it's just noise that you need to tune out of your head if you hear something like this from someone speaking on, you know, a major media news outlet. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I love the fact that they're quantifying this. Me too. And it's long overdue. It is long overdue, Mark. And I think the more eyes that are on these types of things, I'm hoping that people are more responsible with these apocalyptic predictions. Yeah, exactly. Right? If they're going to be held accountable, it's. I think they might be a little more restrained. Yeah. In you know. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, you know, a lot of them do it for, you know, media attention and that type of thing. So, um, no, I'm glad that that this is uh, finally out there for the public. So I really encourage uh, everyone to go check out this article because it makes a lot more sense when you're looking when you're looking at the graph here. Love it. Great, great one there, Mark. So moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. So I kind of previewed this last week on the podcast that eventually we should talk about debt as a financial planning topic. Since so many Americans have so many different forms of debt ranging from student loans to mortgages, car loans, credit cards, etc., And I read an article by Commonwealth's very own uh, David Houghton back in December of 2019, and this was titled, Good Debt or Bad Debt? What Your Clients Need to Know. 
Um, so most people carried that, I would say. The majority of people carried that. Um, so I think this is- In a, one form of another. A, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think this is a topic that is pretty much relatable for, for most people. So I just wanted to kind of dig into this and uh, go over some of the points made in this article. Let's do it. So the first thing that David uh, says that I really like is that there's a very fine line between healthy debt practices and overextending credit to an unsustainable level. Although the term debt carries a negative connotation, not all forms of debt should be viewed with disfavor. For many people, debt is a necessary piece of a healthy financial picture. How else could many individuals obtain an education, purchase a home, or establish a business? But of course, with debt, as with anything, moderation is the key to staying in control. And there are a number of strategies you can employ to promote effective debt management with your clients. Um, so I think it'll help Matt by first explaining the two main forms of debt, which are unsecured debt and secured debt. So unsecured debt is a liability for which the lender's only recourse against the borrower in the event of a default is a lawsuit for breach of contract. And an example of this type of debt includes uh, credit cards and student loans. In the, what's becoming more popular are personal loans today. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Secured debt is a liability for which the lender has a perfected uh, security interest in an asset of the borrower. In the event of a default, the lender has a legal right to repossess its interest in the asset. And obviously, Matt, the, the biggest example here is a mortgage or a car loan. So Absolutely. You don't, don't pay your mortgage, don't pay your car, then they're going to repossess the asset. They're going to repossess the asset. Correct. Yes. Um, so credit card balances and car loans are rarely a part of a healthy financial plan because the assets acquired this way are typically fungible and subject to rapid depreciation. Avoiding these types of debt is advisable unless the client has a strict budget and the discipline to stick to it. Other types of debt, such as mortgages, student loans, and business loans, may ultimately increase net worth when used sensibly. And I think this is generally accepted by most people, Matt. Um, is there anything there that you disagree with? No, there's not. And I think the, the exact verbiage mark that was used there, perfect. So keep going. I mean, I think, I think he's nailing it. And I love the fact how he's like, think of it in the realm of if the asset is going to be drastically depreciating, or, you know, you're not going to get a lot of use out of it. You know, I can maybe fight you about a car, right? A lot of that's personal enjoyment. Right, exactly. Buying a brand new car rather than something that's used or driving your one long, driving your car longer. But I would just absolutely agree that, you know, more securitized debt is going to be something that is acceptable in my view. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Um, and the article kind of goes on to discuss three main life stages uh, for debt, and that includes student years, earning years, and retirement years. This will be interesting. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about first the pros and cons of federal student loans, okay? So on the pro side, student loans offer some flexibility regarding repayment terms. Sometimes in the event of adverse circumstances, the debtor may be able to defer or forbear payments. Additionally, student loans offer the potential for loan forgiveness after a period of 20 to 25 years for those in income-based repayment plans. The time frame to forgiveness can be even shorter for certain teachers and those who work in the nonprofit 
uh, sector. So I kind of want to just take a moment, Matt, um, to go over what the difference is between deferment and forbearance. Okay. Um, so if you defer a loan, um, the length varies uh, by deferment type. So some last three years while others are available as long as you qualify. And forbearance is no more than 12 months at a time. Um, the qualifications for deferment and forbearance for deferment, it's tied to a qualifying event, uh, like being unemployed or enrolled in school at least half of the time. So think you're still a student in school. You defer the loan until after school where you have income to, to pay, pay for it. Yeah. Okay. Right. And as long as that loan is subsidized, the interest does not accrue while you're in school and while the loan is in deferment. Got okay? it. So it has to be subsidized not to accrue interest. Yes, that's okay. correct. And then for forbearance, there's no really specific qualification. Um, and that's why in forbearance, interest accrues if you forbear a loan, essentially. Okay. okay. So um, we just talked about the interest accrual. So the availability, your servicer must grant you a deferment if you meet eligibility criteria and have deferment time available. Again, this is um, you know, a qualifying event such as being unemployed or still enrolled at a school. And forbearance, it's usually your servicer's decision whether to grant you forbearance, though forbearance is mandatory in some instances, but not always guaranteed. Okay. 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 Um, and here's a big one: credit impact. Student loan deferment has no impact on your credit. That's a biggie. Mm-hmm. But student loan forbearance also doesn't have any impact on your credit. Huh. So that okay. actually kind of surprised me. I didn't know that. I thought that, that forbearance would. Um, but again, generally, people who have extenuating circumstances that have subsidized student loans want to go generally the deferment route so they don't have interest accruing when they're not making payments. Interesting. Essentially. Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, and I just kind of wanted to, to throw that out there for people just because, you know, a lot of people get those confused. So I think before you make the decision to, to defer a loan or to go into forbearance on a loan, um, just to make sure you completely understand what the consequences are of both of them. So moving on to the con side, um, these loans come with less favorable interest rates and the government is often willing to provide a far more funding than is reasonably necessary for people. Accepting more aid than necessary can create a liability that might not be eliminated for many years. And I think this is problem, you know, par part of the problem, Matt, and I think we talked about this before because student loans are so readily available and it's easy for people to fall into this trap to say, Hey, I, you know, I qualified for, for this amount. I'm going to take the whole thing. I'm going to take the whole thing. And that goes for other types of debt, not just student loans, but that could get people into trouble because they take the loan for what they were approved uh, for. And then you have more debt to pay off if you didn't really need it in the first place. Heck Mark, I remember, man, it had to be a decade ago. I had a client who was in med school and I think his surplus in one year was like close to like 15 or 20 grand of like the loans that were offered to him wow. versus like what the actual cost of the education and room and board was. Now, I know that that maybe was part of the fact that if he was going to be a doctor, so they felt good about the getting a return of that money. But still, it just goes to show you that was one year, Mark. Yeah. 
So it just goes to show you that, you know, it is readily available. Yeah, it's readily readily available and and you got to pay attention to that stuff because I think that's one of the ways that, you know, these lenders get you um, is to to give you more than you need. And then next thing you know, a couple of years down the road that that you got 200 grand of debt. Yeah, right. When you didn't need to be. And this is a critical one, Matt. Um, David says, be aware that educational loans are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. Interesting. So this fact means it's difficult or even impossible to eliminate a student loan during the debtor's lifetime by any means other than repayment, loan forgiveness, or total disability. Interesting, Mark. Well, I know they changed the bankruptcy laws after the great financial crisis, and I know that they be, they were a lot more restrictive. And I don't know the details other than, you know, the perception that you can just file bankruptcy and wipe the slate clean is just not there anymore. No, it's my not. understanding is you can file for bankruptcy, but then in, in essence, you're developing a repayment plan of those funds that meets your cash flow at that point. Yeah, exactly. But the the days of just wiping the slate clean and moving on, the my understanding, those days doesn't are gone. exist. Yeah, those okay. days are over. Yep. So that kind of caps the the student years, okay? So moving on to the earning years, um, David says that during the this time of life, debt is often a means to further reasonable lifestyle goals. But unless your clients have benefited from generational wealth, they might need to incur a significant amount of debt to achieve their desired lifestyle. This liability may include student loans, car loans, and mortgages. With significant debt of these types, Individuals and couples could be burdened with a negative net worth for a substantial portion of their early professional years. And I think this is a tricky one, Matt, because for most people, I think this is what gets them into trouble down the road is the lifestyle debt, Um, the nicer car, um, the nicer house. And again, if these are the things that make you happy and you want to spend your money on, then by all means, go ahead and do it. But you're just going to have to figure out ways to cut back in other areas of your life, too. But I think, you know, from experience, this lifestyle debt um, typically is one that if you are tight on cash flow every month that, you know, you need to cut back on or not or not participate in at all. Absolutely. Um. Another good good quote from the article says, incurring debt beyond one's means to pay it has represented the path to financial ruin for many people. And I think good way of saying that's it. a good way of saying it. So moving on to the retirement years, once individuals or couples are in retirement, they should have minimal need for liabilities. Typically, a mortgage would be paid off by this point and your clients might be relying on their asset holdings to pay for living expenses and leisure pursuits. And I think this is how typically for most people, Matt, it should be if people have done a good job saving throughout their earning years, yeah, right? Yeah. But that's tied to making sure that people are saving into their 401ks and IRAs and emergency savings that they do have access to this stuff to live off of um, and hopefully not have a whole lot of debt to be paying on because that just takes away from household cash flow month to month. Absolutely. One thing I'll throw out there, thinking about like the mortgage for a retiree, um, just recently I had, um, a client contact me and say, listen, I got about 10 years left on my mortgage. My, my rates a little bit higher than what I'm kind of seeing around. And he's like, but you know, at my age, you know, I'm not eligible to, to refinance. And I think that's a misconception uh, that's out there. 
So um, I would inform that client that that's not true, that, um, you know, the age, them being in their mid 60s, they can still do a refinance at that age. Mm -hmm. I just think at times there's a there's a misconception that, you know, there's an age limit um, to, to refinancing and there's not. So it made me think of that. I wanted to throw it out there. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a good point because there are age limits for so much else in our there is. financial So it's natural that people there. would think that, yeah. Mark, right? Yeah, no, okay. good point. So how should excessive debt be handled? Uh, David says a financial cushion is necessary to handle unexpected circumstances and catastrophe. Living without one can lead to unmanageable debt and bankruptcy. At some point, most families will have to cope with an unanticipated job loss or illness, an economic downturn, or some combination of both. So just because someone incurs a situation like this doesn't mean they can just stop paying on their loans, right? You have to pay the debt back regardless. Um, and again, this is why emergency savings or after-tax accounts are very helpful in periods of a job loss or if there's a major expense that you have to pay for in your life, um, your car uh, gets totaled or your car breaks down and you have to go get a new car. So, it yeah, is, so think of it as like an emergency fund, but rather just let it sit at the bank earning a half a percent. I'm saying that just throwing a random number out there, you know, because you might not ever use those funds for five years. Mm -hmm. So I think, it, you know, as you build it up, consider investing part of it, depending upon the situation, could make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. So just to conclude, I think the major thing that I got out of this is that um, if people ask you the question of, you know, what is good debt and what is bad debt? There you go. Um, I think bad debt is the lifestyle debt, you know, just taking on debt to, to increase your lifestyle in some circumstances generally is not a, uh, you know, contributor to increasing your net worth, right? Yep. Um, the better forms of debt, like a mortgage um, or a secured loan, something that um, you know gives you another asset that down the road adds to your net and worth. And education. And education adds to your net worth. So, that, you know, for example, an education in most circumstances, I would make the argument could increase your earning potential. Not in all cases, but in most cases, I could make that argument, I think. Um, so I think when you're going to take on debt, I think you stop before you do it and ask yourself 10, 15, 20 years down the road, is this going to benefit me financially? If you're, if you're in a position where cash flow is tight and you really need to watch it. Now, for some people, it's not an issue and they can do that. But if you are one of those people that fall into the category of needing to watch where your cash flow is going every month, I think you need to ask yourself that question before taking on debt like this. I think you said it perfectly, Mark. So I think for the listeners, we've kind of defined the good and the bad debt. I got one last thing I want to throw your way, and I'm interested to see your response. Okay. Have you ever heard the people say, well, instead of universities um, you know, having um, people take loans out, that you ever heard the theory that at some point they might come and say, we'll put you through this college at no cost, room and board, everything. But after you graduate for the next 20 years, whatever you file on your taxes for your income, we get 10% of it. Yeah. You've heard of this. I have. I have. And I think it was it was a big topic. Uh, I think sometime in the summer of 2019, I remember reading about this. Yeah. And it's an interesting concept, right? Because I think it would make sense for higher 
earners that come out of college. So um, just taking an example, like an engineer, okay, for example, versus someone, um, f- let's say, that's going into education or that wants to be a teacher. And I don't say that because, you know, one is greater than the other. I just say it because if you look at historically what engineers are paid and what teachers are paid, generally yeah. the average for yeah. engineers is higher. Yeah. So I think for higher earners, this could make sense um, in terms of not having a substantial debt load. But for someone who has a lower income right out of college, you know, 10% could be a pretty large chunk. Absolutely. Right. And then the other thing is, how do you handle it if, say, an engineer instead isn't in engineering anymore and they, you know, go to be a teacher, they go and take a job where they're making less money? How do you account for that? Yeah. Because is it still 10% you have to pay back of an engineer's salary or is it 10% of whatever job you move back into? Great point. And how do you figure that out? Or on the really, really big side, let's say you have some, some, um, software engineer that hits it big in Silicon Valley and he's making seven, eight figures, does he still have to give up 10%? Right. So I know it's just a loaded, it's kind of a loaded question. It's just an interesting, you know, people trying to throw out different ways they can reform the education system because the cost inflation is just so high. Yeah. And it was an intriguing idea. Will it ever happen? Probably not. Yeah. But it was just, I want to throw it out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard of even, uh, not even like colleges paying for this, but like private investors. Like low, an investment. Yeah. Like yeah. almost like an investment. Like, like hey, a private I believe investment. in you. You're going to do good in life. They make a deal. Right. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. And maybe it's, you know, 10%. And then there's like a certain like dollar limit that it's limited to, to X. Right. Exactly. It's interesting though. So it's very, it's very interesting. So it's def- definitely a potential concept to, to keep watching down the road. Hmm. So, all right. Yeah. Um, anything else this week that's on your mind before we kind of wrap up here? No, I mean, I think you've looked at the chart of the S&P 500. You're starting to see the continuation pattern uh, mark of a uh, two step forward, one step back kind of motion and we seem to kind of be uh filling back up that uh that one step back right now Mm -hmm. so uh that's the only comment i'll throw out there yeah yeah okay well thank you everyone for listening to the 32nd episode of the independent independent advisors podcast we hope you all have a great rest of the week and uh, keep sending us your questions we haven't had a couple questions in a while so Uh, send us what you want to hear. And over the next few weeks, uh, we will be having some guests on the podcast. So um, look out for that. So that's uh, a very exciting thing for us here. So uh, have a good week and we will be back with you next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. 
and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.